Hey everybody, this is Dr. John. Thanks for joining us again here. Today we have somebody really special, uh, Dr. Samuel Kagan. So today, Dr. Kagan is actually going to walk us through a little bit about his background, about his career in medicine, but also, more interestingly, um, the field of art that he's really discovered his passion for. So we're also going to go over some of his paintings that he's created recently, such as this one over here. And we're just going to have a fun chat about uh, everything that comes to mind, whether it's about patient care, whether it's about creativity, about who are we and why we're here. So Dr. Keegan, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. So nice Dr. Keegan, you went to medical school uh, in South Carolina. No, Southern in California. Southern California. Okay. Yeah. Great. I saw the SC. So. Yeah. And, uh, and and did you grow up in New England, or did you grow up in other parts of the country? I was born in Los Angeles. Okay. So I'm a, uh, from La La Land. So I was born in L.A. My parents had emigrated there from Europe after the Second World War. Uh, they were Holocaust survivors. Oh, wow. And uh, they came through uh, New York to L.A. and settled there. I'm uh, a twin. Uh, there are three brothers. I have an older brother, and I have a twin uh, who's a fraternal twin. And we grew up in Los Angeles uh, in a uh, household where my father uh, was an artist. His father was a woodcarver in Vilna, Poland, mm. or Lithuania at the time, and uh, his father's father was a rabbi. So we sort of have this combination of uh, intellectual and uh, artistic uh, history that I come from. And uh, so when I grew up in L.A., my father, who had just experienced the Holocaust, and my mother as well, uh, were working through their personal experiences with you know, one of the biggest uh, tragedies of the 20th century. And they uh, worked it out in their own ways. My father, through his art, he mm. would, uh, he did uh, different media, but primarily since his father was a woodcarver, he was, would carve objects out of um, wood that uh, reflected his experience, his memories. And I used to sit in the garage with him and watch him do his work. I mean, I can still smell the linseed oil and the fresh carved wood uh, as a memory. So those kinds of things are a big part of who I am and the way I uh, engage the world, you know, the, the things mm -hmm. that I like. So it was a big outlet for him as well. Yeah. Well, it was, it was therapeutic and it was also for me educational. So uh, I was learning about a craft, a technique, a mode of expression. And I was also learning about his story. So he mm. talked to me about things as well and ingrained in me uh, some fundamental ideas about his perspective on just about the human experience. And his was a particularly traumatic one. And so I had, uh, unfortunately, a very uh, personal experience with how bad the human experience can be. Uh, but uh, L.A. was sort of an interesting cosmopolitan area, and as opposed to a lot of different things. Mm. I ended up, uh, uh, my brother and I were always in active discussion with my father at the dinner table. 
We talked about everything. We talked about politics. We talked about art. We talked about literature. We talked about everything. And everything was a debate. So everyone... Was it a healthy debate? Always. Always. You know, there were people who had different personalities. My, my twin brother was a little stronger personality. My father was a very strong personality and a terrific storyteller. But uh, all of these things created a fertile uh, environment for the mind mm. and thinking and ideas and kicking them around. And I was allowed to have and, uh, my own ideas and to express them. Now, it didn't mean I didn't get criticized, but that was healthy. You know. So it really gave you thick skin. Uh, yeah, thick skin, but it also just made me recognize that a couple of things. One, everybody has different ideas about uh, different uh, concepts, uh, topics, and everybody's right and everybody's wrong to some degree or another. We mm -hmm. all sort of have to look for where the truth lies in all of our arguments. So that was part of the discussion. You know, you didn't take anything for granted. And um, when you're skeptical, uh, there's sort of the skepticism in the arguments. You start finding the, the scientific method as a sort of uh, institutionalized or formal method, mechanism by which one goes after the truth. Is that how you got interested in medicine? The, the whole idea of of skeptical thought was sort of ingrained in mm. the way we interacted with one another. So it was sort of a natural thing to be thinking about things. And then when you start thinking about the natural world, and, and that's the other thing that, that really fascinated me, I have an insatiable curiosity. I'm curious about anything. You know, I can get into conversations about anything from art to literature, to music, to how does a chainsaw work, or you know, how do I, you know, how do I cut that tree up uh, effectively, like we did with we just had that nor'easter, mm. you know, and dealing with my neighbors and talking to them about what they do, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that is the big question. It's it can be something as simple as you know, how do I get that limb down without killing myself, right? So that's just a natural part of me. And so this innate curiosity is just part of me. And then the natural world uh, is some huge issue. You know, who am I? Where am I in this natural, natural world? How does it operate? And the scientific method was sort of a great way to begin to understand how the world I found myself in operated. What are the rules? What are the laws? How does it work? But more particularly, I was more interested in in life forms. What's life all about? How does it work? What can nature, t what, what does the scientific method mm -hmm. tell us about how the natural world operates? Did you really enjoy observing people? Well, yeah, there was, well, it was not, it was the first thing I think, I remember we were probably in junior high school. My brother and I were sitting there uh, on the lawn and a, a leaf came down and picked it up and looked at it. And it's this green thing. And how does it survive? Well, it uses photosynthesis. Well, what's photosynthesis all about? And we had just begun to study that in junior high. So I could have looked at a leaf and looked at a leaf and looked at it for, for its uh, personal aesthetic value. But then once I added another layer of knowledge, 
Um, somebody explained to me what photosynthesis was. How does it work? How does it transform or transduce energy from sunlight into the energy required to split or create sugar? Mm. Say, wow. That's, so there's layers and layers and layers and layers of understanding. And that I found absolutely fascinating. It, it, it enriched my ability to enjoy the world that I lived in. So there was a natural inclination towards the uh, biological and understanding human beings was sort of a natural extension of all of that. That was one particular version of life forms that are here mm. and that one I had a lot of access to. And so coupling that with you know, practical issues, how do you make a living, how do you survive in this world? And my father had told me uh, as part of his personal experience that was when he was in the concentration camps or in the ghetto, who were the people that did well? These were the professionals. These were doctors. Mm -hmm. The world can be no anything. Lawyers. No, no, we didn't talk about the lawyers, and, you know, that's a whole different political social issues. Mm. I mean, they don't want to disparage lawyers. That's not an appropriate thing to do. I mean, they do have their place, and they do, do very important things. But for me, um, the... Uh, well, my, my thought I was going on, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, the doctors did very well, the professionals. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so in, in the concentration camps, the doctors did very well because no matter where you were, whatever the circumstances, you, you were needed. Mm. Not only were you needed, but what you were capable of doing was stored here. It was all about your knowledge. Something portable, nobody can take away from you. Universal, a skill that... Uh, could be applied no matter what the circumstances were. So it was kind of a natural fit, both pragmatically in terms of who I am, my own basic uh, inclinations about things, to uh, be uh, inclined to go into medicine. Medicine had a lot of that, all of those things mm. built into it. Plus, from a moral and ethical perspective, um, what could be better than to do things that not only enhance me uh, economically and my station in the community, but do something that um, benefits others. It has all those things built into it, right? So you, so you train in California. Right. And what got you to the other coast? Well, I trained in California. I was in... Uh, you know, went to medical school, uh, undergraduate at UCLA, and then graduate school in UCLA, and then medical school at the University of Southern California at L.A. County Hospital. And then I did my residency in Ventura, which was 60 miles north of L.A. Mm. At, uh, UCLA had a uh, family practice program. Well, in the ICU, I met my wife. She was a nurse working there. And guess where she was from? Rhode Island. You got it. So, <coughs> maternal genes. Yeah. So... Um, we uh, um, lived in Ventura until I finished my residency. Uh, we worked for a while, and actually, I took a year off after I finished my training. Mm. 
and uh, we worked for about six months and then we, uh, my wife and I had trained on bicycles and traveled through Europe. Oh, wow. So it took eight months and for at least two and a half months we did a bicycle tour. We went through England, Ireland, Denmark. We rode on the Champs-Élysées on our bikes and through Paris we met family and friends and uh, then we went to Holland where we thought we were going to have a nice flat ride. But given my interest in art, we had to stop at the Rijksmuseum. Mm. And there was a Rembrandt there that I wanted to see, the, right, uh, the Night Watch. So we chained our bikes to the fence, checked our panniers, went in, went through the museum, saw the Night Watch, came out and our bikes were gone. Wow. So from that we had to switch to backpacks. So for the rest of the trip, we went through the rest, you know, most of, of Europe and then uh, took a, a ferry to Israel and met uh, many of my family's friends and relatives there. And I spent three months in Israel, part of the time working in a hospital uh, in uh, Elat, which was sort of a frontier town then. Mm. Met some interesting people, a surgeon from Mass General was working there and I worked with him for a while. And then took you know jeep tours through the uh, Sinai Peninsula and, and those kinds of things. So I I became familiar with with the country. My wife came back a little bit earlier, and then I came back and uh, was offered a fellowship, and did a family practice teaching fellowship for a year, and then we moved to L.A. Had two children, and then my wife said, "I don't want to be in L.A. after ten years. I don't like it there." So she said, "I'm moving to Rhode Island. You coming with me?" <laughs> So that was so it. So that's what got me to Rhode Island. Got it. And so, then de decades later, you're, you're here. I mean, you've built a very successful practice. We've had a lot of patients from your practice actually come through Doctor's Choice. And I know that you've been a pillar in the community for a while. So what was it like for you when you first started practicing medicine? And how did medicine change? Well, you know, from my background, I was always interested in doing something that um, had uh, or I was comfortable with both economically, morally and ethically, intellectually, um, scientifically, all those things were really important to me. Mm. It wasn't a business. Business was the last thing on my mind. Um, if I could uh, make a, a decent living and um, uh, for the most part make few mistakes and mostly take care of people and get them better, I think that that was a good life for me. And that's the way I built the practice in East Greenwich with uh, my associate. Um, that was what, 25 years ago. And uh, medicine for me and for the other people that I work with were pretty much a calling. You know, it was about caring for people. You know, you gave as much as you took. Mm. And uh, what happened to medicine, uh, as far as I can tell, is that uh, it went from being more of a calling for people who felt it was the right thing for them to do and became a business. So when the business model got introduced into medicine, which was fairly inefficient, but uh, was at its core a humanistic endeavor, 
Um, the pyramid got inverted. So instead of the humanistic aspect of medicine driving it, the efficiency, uh, profitability became the primary drivers of it. And that's what I saw happen over the 20 plus years mm. I was here. Um, I understand the need to maintain a solvent business. Um, but as we know from uh, prior experience that um, the business model is primarily driven by profit. A successful business is a profitable enterprise. And the more money you make, the more, quote, successful you are. Mm. And so that became a more important aspect of medicine than it had been before. Certainly there was the economic component. I don't mean there never was. But the priorities became inverted. But it seems like physicians you know, 20, 30 years ago were more in control of their own destiny. They were more lenient towards patient care in terms of what they could give. And on, a, on an inflation-adjusted basis, they were making more money. I, I, yeah, I guess, but we're starting to talk about money first, and that's where the problem lies as far as I'm concerned. Medicine is not about money first. Medicine is about caring for others, giving them an opportunity to flourish in this life um, when they're faced with uh, circumstances beyond their control. Mm. You can help them do that. And uh, that's, I think, should be the motive force of how we train the healthcare providers and create a structure uh, that allows that to happen. There are logistics of it, there's the economics of all of that, but you can't invert the system. Once you do, you have to sit back and say, what are we doing here? What's the point? So it's about the priorities and the, and so, the meaning yeah, behind exactly. it. Exactly. So the priorities are really going to be that. I understand that, uh, well, that was one particular aspect. The other, the other aspect of it has to do with... Um, the sophistication of our knowledge about everything in general. It has become more sophisticated, more complex, and oftentimes beyond the capabilities of one individual. Mm. Specifically in family practice, presumably you're supposed to know everything about everything, right? So anything that walks through the door, sits down in front of you, you have to be able to make an assessment as to what's going on there and offer an answer. Um, when your knowledge base was very small and what's expected of you is minimal, it's doable. But when the knowledge base becomes something that's 
beyond your capability of completely integrating. And as we become more sophisticated, people's expectations become greater, which is certainly appropriate. Um, it becomes more difficult to do both. So in primary care, it becomes an increasingly difficult challenge mm. to do that. It's getting too complicated, too many moving pieces and well, yeah, and the thing is, is that not only, exactly, I agree, as well as the speed with which we're acquiring new knowledge and new uh, Seems like technique. it's ex exponential. Well, yeah. So uh, I think that's also a big piece of what of the challenges mm -hmm. that face us in trying to create a, an optimal healthcare delivery system. So if you had a blank slate, how would you design it? It's, I don't know. I mean, the things that I would think about, because I don't think I could offer you the ideal healthcare delivery system. What I could probably tell you is that um, the, the initial priority that I was talking about, the humanity of the operation is really the, is, is the center of everything. Can we do something that allows our fellow human beings to flourish in this life? Mm. That's what we've got to do, okay? Next, we have to figure out a way of making that happen given all those moving parts. And that's the conundrum. Because it's, I think it's a very difficult thing for even the best-meaning individuals to put together. Um, So, no, I don't have an answer, and I'm saying that not because, to be evasive, it's, it's just because the problem is so enormous and so difficult. But your advice would be to just keep the priorities straight instead of focus, and I think that's the thing with most companies that we see that sort of, you know, capitalize on their goodwill and end up going downhill because they think about killing the golden goose versus doing what got them there in the first place. Mm -hmm which is to create a really high quality service or product that everybody would love to tell their family and friends about. And nowadays we can't turn the corner without having somebody complain about you know, insurance or how healthcare is so complicated and how long they have to wait or um, you know, all these complexities and the byproducts of complexities. Right. So that's, that's really interesting. So was that one of the drivers um, in terms of you making that decision because you were always interested in, in art and did you have much time throughout your career to devote to your, your artwork? I always doodled. If you talk to my secretaries, when I'm on the phone, I'm usually unconsciously doodling <laughs> things. And so when it looks like you're taking notes here? Well, I do take notes too. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's just that, you know, when I am doing things that are basically rote, I can sit there and I you know, scrap paper about all mm. kinds of stuff. But, but I always did, did that. And in college, I took um, a course or two in life drawing and things like that. And I've always, you know, when I had spare time, probably the last 10 years, in my basement, I had a little studio that I would run down to and spend a few hours just letting things happen. Mm. Um, so I've always done a little bit, but um, 
And since retirement, you've had a lot more time to... Yeah, that's one of the reasons I retired. Uh, You know, one of the things that the perspective of being a physician offers you relatively uniquely is that you get a chance to um, see the arc of human life Mm. up close and in detail. I mean, I have seen thousands and thousands of people in just about every possible circumstance you can think of, psychologically and emotionally, financially, whatever it is, and had discussions with them about them. What's happening in your life? Why did this happen? And I listened. And I saw that people spent their lives in a lot of different ways, many of which were uh, sacrificed for... um, practical reasons, Mm. never really did what they wanted to do, and ended up living a life chasing an elusive rabbit somewhere down a hole. Uh, I found that we all sort of go through phases from early childhood, adolescence, midlife, and then uh, old age. And one tends to um, degenerate as time goes on and you have only a certain amount of time to do things. Mm. So when I got to my late 60s, I found that between 70 and 80, people were relatively productive. After 80, generally, it's a pretty much downhill course unless you're one of those lucky ones. So at this point in my life, I decided, okay, I've done medicine for, well, I graduated medical school over 40 years ago. I've had a good run of it. Um, We've made some very reasonable uh, investments. We've been very prudent about the way we do things. You know, I don't have to be rich. I just have to have enough to get by. So I decided medicine isn't as much fun as it used to be because of the inversion of priorities. I didn't really feel like I wanted to do that. It became more of a chore. And I figured I had another good 10 years to pursue with equal enthusiasm art like I did medicine. Most of your art tends to be on the abstract side. It does right now. My my art sort of, uh, this is sort of a tangent, but it, it has a lot to do with some of my readings. Many, many years ago, I read a book called The uh, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance Hmm. by Robert Persig. And it was a story about a a man who was a philosopher or a philosophy teacher who descends into madness on a motorcycle trip across the country. But he was a very brilliant guy, an abstract thinker, but also a person who introduced me uh, to philosophy. And interesting enough, when my older son was a late teenager, I gave him that book to read. Did he go on a motorcycle trip afterwards? He is now a PhD in philosophy Hmm. and a motorcycle enthusiast. So it worked. So, but his area of interest in philosophy is philosophy of the mind. 
the question of consciousness, what is it, how does it work? Mm. So you, you go from uh, detection to perception to awareness to conscious understanding to the sense of, of uh, an I, who am I, what I... And consciousness is sort of the investigation. And it all goes back to that one question. You know, if you look at religion or art or philosophy. These are the, these are the fundamental questions about existence. You know, who is existing in the first place? Right. What is that consciousness? And it lives in a world that appears to us. Mm. What's that all about? So if you seriously want it, you know, and I've told you before, I'm curious about all kinds of stuff. So the curiosity uh, about consciousness became acute. And my son did his PhD on, in, on consciousness. And so we've had con a lot of conversations about it and exchanged literature, and we've been reading that stuff for at least a decade. Mm. And uh, so the visual arts are about visual perception and the way that information is... Um, manifest or processed by the individual. And so understanding how that works and then playing with that in the art is sort of what pieces like these are like. So walk me through this piece in terms of, you know, interpreting it and... Well, let me ask you first, what do you see there, first of all? Yeah, so, you know, I sort of see multiple dimensions, multiple layers here. I mean, you've got the you know the mixture of the angles and the as well as more amorphous shapes here it almost almost seems like to me you're seeing through multiple layers and looking to interpret almost the same things a little bit differently every step of the way now when you are thinking about things do you think about them in abstract terms or do you have a qualitative subjective experience about them you know, that's actually something I've been trying to figure out for me, too, because for certain things, I can jump straight into the abstract. But for, you know, a lot of the things that are what I consider earthly, you know, you walk through a door, you look at Medicare, um, you try to go through it from a very systematic perspective that seems almost like a manufacturer process versus... So kind of straight lines yeah. and images there, right? Yeah. And then... I guess I'm confused in some ways. So how do you deal with taste, smell, color. Do you look at that in the same way or deal with it the same way? For those, I sort of just, I just experience them. So those are the subjective qualitative experiences, yeah. or the organic kind of thing that you can't abstract with your brain. You just have to experience it. Right. That's a big part of what it means to be conscious. And neurophilosophers have, um, investigated the question of consciousness and looking at it in a lot of different ways, but uh, they have divided it, at least for, for now, into the hard question and the simple question of consciousness. The hard question, I'll get to in a second, but the, the easy question, which isn't so easy at all, is how does a brain body create consciousness. You've got eight billion neurons in your brain and trillions of connections there. How does all of that create 
smell to, or consciousness. Mm. So you can sort of do fMRIs, you can do imaging, you can look at neurons, you can do the chemistry, you can figure out how that happens. But no matter how much knowledge you have about that, is that going to tell us what the qualitative experience of seeing red is? Yeah, you really can't. It's a tough question. One of my pieces addresses that question. Well, in this one, you've got the combination of sort of the abstract, but you also have these organic, round, qualitative experience of this thing here mm. on top of the abstract and the organic or the qualitative and the abstract, which are parts of who we are and what we are as individuals. So this work sort of plays on the abstract and the organic and also the sense of dimensions and depth, because this work, the work goes into the frame as well. Right, I did see that. It's So it's where does the frame begin? Where does the image end? All of those kinds of things are Did you difficult. do the woodwork for this? Yeah, I, I made the frame as well. I, did the whole, I have a little shop work Neat. next to my studio to build all these things. So that's one thing that's been particularly interesting to me uh, is playing with that in my artwork. Mm. Um, other stuff is sort of um, the whole process of being unfettered, not having critics, both external and internal. Your whole life, whether it's your parents telling you you should or you shouldn't, or your teachers telling you you're doing it wrong, you're doing it right, or yourself telling yourself, well, that's not good enough, or maybe you should, to get to a state where that is gone and just let stuff emerge out of an interaction with a medium is what's so attractive about doing the art now. Mm. I have thrown out all critics. So you're doing it for yourself? I'm doing it for what I am, yeah. yeah. And what it does is going to come out. Now, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a father who was artistic, so probably I've got some genetic predisposition to allow me to have an instrument that will give voice to that. Mm. But it could just as easily have been playing the saxophone or writing poetry or whatever it is in anything in what we call the liberal arts. That's one of the things that's sort of missing in the training of many of our physicians. We are so science and abstract in our approach to things, we don't really give much credence to the liberal arts. Mm. Those other things that are sort of unfettered, um, based in the pre-conscious, the unconscious, the emotional aspect of being, and allowing those things to be nourished along with just sort of the abstract bones and all that kind of stuff. Because medicine, ultimately, it is an art form. It is an art, if you're doing it right. Yeah, and with the same knowledge, you know, we can have very different outcomes based on right. just the interaction, you know, because there's so many factors that are dependent on the interaction. It is, I mean, how do you allow a person to flourish in this life? You give them food, you give them clothing, you put a dollar in their pocket, pat on the back and send them out the door? Mm, not necessarily. There's 
much more to a human being than that. Mm. I mean, if you've had a child and you've made a human connection with your children, your family, those are intangible, ephemeral things that are just as important as a buck in your pocket. Right, but, like the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? The if you, uh, if you want to quantitate it in some sort of abstract notion, sure. But that's what it is. And that's part of the art of medicine, too. Mm. It's just making that human connection and being there as yourself. And that allows people to be very comfortable. And it gives them a sense of, I'm talking to another human being. I'm not talking to uh, an insensitive machine, you know. Sure, there are mechanical things that need to be done that override it, depending upon the context in which you find yourself. In the emergency room, somebody's bleeding out. It's very mechanical. Mm. But if you're sitting there with someone who just found out that their partner's going to divorce them, that's not mechanical. Right. You know, it's just as important because their lives are shattered. But being there to sit there and listen and talk and help them through that is uh, an essential part of being the artist of a doctor. Mm. Yeah. And that's really important too. Yeah. And also, so what I want to do is we're going to close out this portion of the interview, but we're going to have Dr. Kagan show us some more um, paintings that he's brought us. And we're going to go into some of the uh, more abstract, you know, figuring out the senses and, mm -hmm. and, and going to more of the philosophical side of things. But also, Dr. Kagan, uh, where can people find more about uh, your work? Are you going to be putting up a website? Are you going to be, what's the best way to, to reach out? And if there isn't, then what we'll do is that instead of giving out your number, um, you can contact our office here at Dr. Stroyce and, um, you know, we'll, we'll be happy to sort of be that liaison um, and get you Dr. Kagan's contact information if, um, if you want to get in touch with him to, whether it's to learn more about his artwork or, or purchase uh, a piece for yourself. Great. Um, I don't have a website. I've been doing all this just for myself right now. I have not uh, uh, turned this into a business yet. I'm sort of going at it the same way I went after medicine. Mm. Um, but my end game is if I could make this revenue neutral, where the money that I make from the work that I do allows me to keep doing what I'm doing, uh, that would be nice. Um, uh, that's what I like doing. That's the way I am. And so uh, I'll see what we can set up down the road here is to, uh, you know, allow people to have access to it. And if they want to buy things, you know, mm. fine. That would be great. It'll keep me uh, uh, in enough money to buy the paints and the supplies I need to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I want to keep you going. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming oh, on. My so pleasure, John. 